Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a comedian, a game show host, and now author of the compulsively readable book, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Hello and welcome, Guy Branham. It is a beautiful building. Um, it just seems like if you needed to have like your thyroid looked at <laughs> or some like orthodontia yeah. done, it's very convenient here. This building seems like a place that would have a lot of tongue depressors in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and swabs. Yes. My old dentist is very close to here. My current dentist is incredibly close to here. So far, it's nice. been the only perk to working here. It's once every yeah. six months, this place pays off, baby. Yeah. My therapist lives, he works out of his apartment, and that's gross, but it's just around the corner from my apartment, <laughs> so I live with it. Is he like a licensed therapist? Yes, I'm told. How do you verify that sort of thing? I mean, my insurance covers him. Oh, okay, yeah. That's all we're worried about. I, are you kind of person who's just going to, like, you've been in therapy for forever, and you're probably going to be in therapy forever? Yes. I, I took a significant period away, like I stopped going to therapy because I moved for a job, and then for several years... I was not in therapy, and that was bad. And then I was like, I should go back to therapy. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Because, okay, I read your book. I really Thank enjoyed you your book. Thank for reading my book. Absolutely. Yeah, my- I went through it in a weekend and, and, and change. I saw you around here. You were on Michelangelo Signorelli's show, and I saw your, your book because you were here promoting it, and I yeah. brought it home, and I, I didn't know what to expect because I know how this works. You get to a certain level in entertainment comedy they give you a book deal and they kind of go hey what what would you do if you wrote a book and the answer for comedians is goofy stories about your childhood or right. just writing down your material right that's funny i read a book uh ellen put out a couple of years ago and i keep yeah. waiting for somebody to go back and discover that one of her jokes was involved her uh, housekeeper or somebody whose name was bok choy uh yeah yeah it was a different time we've all evolved a lot yes also, let's be fair. Ellen didn't write that book. <laughs> right? Ellen approved that book. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Ellen perused that book. Yes. I read I love the story that supposedly Jay Leno bought the stories in his in his comedian memoir book. And the the best part is that they're even more mundane than you would expect from a Jay Leno book of Let Me Tell You About My Crazy <laughs> Life. <laughs> That's lovely. But you wrote this book. It is obvious you wrote this book. This is a book that I'm going to guess you started composing in rough draft form in your brain when you were about 10 years old. (laughs) No, quite the reverse. Uh, I spent like the first five months after getting the book deal not knowing how to write the book um, and not knowing what to do. Uh, And I I finally just had to like set up projects for myself to, to figure it out. One of the things that was nice about the book is uh, an editor I didn't end up working with, but who was looking at the book, was familiar with my podcast, Pop Rocket, where we talk about pop culture. And she was like, you should talk about pop culture in the book. And it was really imp- like it was really valuable for me to do that because I feel like the kind of stories that you have when you're growing up a little gay kid uh, aren't 
the sort of stories that we expect from comedian memoir because most of the stuff is just going on in your head. You're not allowed to say most of the things that you're thinking or or whatever. And so uh, it was like valuable for me to sort of like use the culture that sort of like helped shape the way I saw myself. Yeah, see, unlike, I've, I've talked to other people who have come in talking, you know, comedians doing their memoir that they may or may not have written themselves, and yeah. it. I feel like I, I have to talk to you. This is a literary interview. You okay. wrote a, you wrote a piece of, of literature, yes. and, and I know that you know that you did. So you, um, I'm going to talk to you as such. So you dedicated the book to your father, yes. who you say would have hated the book. Yes. So we know from the outset a couple things. Uh-huh. Your, your father is no longer yes. with us, and... You all did not see eye to eye on certain things. Would you have written this book, do you think, if he had been alive? I would like to believe that I would have still written the book, but it would have just caused huge damage to my family. And I honestly feel a little bit guilty that no Thanksgivings were ruined by this book. You know, you like, don't mean that. I, I, I a little bit would feel more honest if he had had the chance to push back and tell me how I was ruining their lives by sharing our you know nefarious secrets well he's right just because i think about that i you know i do radio and i do stand up and there's certain things about my life that would probably be pretty funny but it would be pretty uncomfortable for me to go home from that and i tend to i tend to omit them unless it's like really funny then you then you kind of have to do it it's not fair it's this artificial thing just because you're doing it on the world stage and entertainment says it's okay for your family to find out every single thing you ever hated about them through a book that's at their local Barnes and Noble is not cool. And look, it's not just a list of things I hate <laughs> about people. It's like 80% that, but then there are some fun parts. Mm-hmm. Um, th- yeah, I mean, the question of how much do you own the lives of the people who are in your life for, for storytelling purposes is always hard. Like, I try to, you know, uh, avoid going too in-depth on any of the, like, ch- children who are family members and that kind of thing. Um, well, that's, but, that's smart. I, my entire standup's about my six-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, uh, with my dad, um, it was like the first thing that I wrote was the chapter about my dad. I watched his favorite movie, which I had never seen before. Uh, and then sort of like realized that it really was relevant to our relationship and sort of like kind of did a postmortem on our relationship. Mm-hmm. So what's the movie? Uh, the movie is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's a great movie. Uh, yeah, it's from 1962. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Western about uh, a law-talking man who tries to use the law in the Old West. And John Wayne teaches him the only law that works in the Old West is a gun. Yep. Yeah, when uh, what that's uh, that's print the legend. Yeah, that's Liberty Valance. I found a book on right after I found your book over uh-huh. on the other side by the kitchenette. Yeah. Uh, I found a book that was a uh, uh, Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart biography. Oh, so that was I just finished that one after I finished your oh, book. So cool. I'm, I'm all up on Liberty Valance. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart was really like that. Apparently, it's insane. I would love to learn more about Jimmy Stewart's life. I'll give you the book. Yeah, that would be great. It's tough when you're reading a dual biography and you realize you don't give a shit about Henry Fonda. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. So the setting of your book is critical to the early parts of the book, and clearly critical to who you are as a person. Can you briefly tell listeners where it is that you grew up? I am from just outside of Yuba City, California, which is a small farming town an hour north of Sacramento in the part of California no one likes or cares about. It is where essentially every almond and peach and prune you have eaten in your life comes from. It is this uh, very fertile uh, 
like agriculturally, but not intellectually sort of like pocket about three hours away from San Francisco. And there's this magical way, like if you've seen Lady Bird, uh, it sort of captures the way that the cultural magnetism of San Francisco like only leaves people in, you know, Sacramento and its environs who don't know how to hope. You know, um, and so that really influenced like my my growing up because I was surrounded by people who were like, you know, don't try to do anything more important than construction or agriculture, because if you do, your life will be destroyed. Now, that's certainly a message in the book. How explicitly was that conveyed to you? Did you anyway say, listen, boy, have a seat on this uh, fence that we made and let me tell you about why you shouldn't have aspirations? Uh, the phrase, you don't need to know that, was said to me so frequently as a child. Um, you know, and God knows there, like, it is not impossible to sort of, like, escape that space. Uh, my town did produce one winner of Project Runway, and uh, a famous... Uh, did, they, did they get a sign like, welcome to Yuba City, home of... <laughs> no, not remotely. Uh, and then there's also... Well, what's funny is that, like, it's a woman who won Project Runway and then another gay guy who's, like, see his choreographer. And Yuba City will never mention that those people are from there because Yuba City would infinitely rather have a nice MMA fighter. Or, like, Yuba City is only bragging about guys who played um, in the major leagues for yeah. three games. Maybe then, pop country. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, we wish we could pull off a, <laughs> a, a pop country maybe with some Christian in there. Yeah. You know? It's funny because, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, you're from California and people just, oh, California. and Sunshine, good times, maybe wineries. Liberal. Yeah. And you're not from that. You're not from that California. No, it's like every every five to ten years, like the L.A. Times or the San Francisco Chronicle will do some article about like, here's the Trumpiest county in America, or here's the <laughs> county, or here's the now county. I think it put on the sign. Here's the county in California, or it's the Trumpiest county in California, not America, or like here's the county. Uh, I saw a statistical analysis that my county was the county most likely to like Elvis. Like it's various ways of saying like. They are poor and uneducated and have a high crime rate, but are also very racist. <laughs> so uh, you paint a distinct picture of farm life. You essentially grew up yes. on a farm and you said that people, I have not spent much time around farms, that people who haven't, who aren't farm people have no idea what farms are well, like. Well, it's, it's a very different kind of farm. Like, I don't know what life is like on like a Midwestern sort of like soybean or wheat farm or whatever, but like I grew up in an almond orchard. Um, and like, it, it is this very narrow, like, you know, uh, <laughs> the amount of money you can make off of an agricultural crop is, is very limited. Like it's not very expensive. So you have to like, just live off of the, the bare difference between what it costs to like grow these things and then to sell them off to your masters in, in the city. Like, um, it's very boring and there's a lot of dirt. Yeah. I mean, on the, it sounds on, medieval. It, it really was like, Oh, it's, it's so funny. Like, so every fall, I would like as a small child, I would get a toy because we were going to go have to go knock the almonds. And so we would go out. We didn't have enough space or money to sort of like use a mechanical uh, harvesting machine. So like all of the dads would stand around the tree with big mallets and hit the tree. And the moms had these flailing poles um, that, who, that would knock around in the branches. And then 
the almonds fell and then the kids picked them up and put them in buckets. And like when I was a small child, I like got a toy to play with. But when I turned like four or five, yeah. I had to like go and pick up the almonds. The proper almond gathering age. And it was like years later, I was like, oh, I, partic- I participated in a harvest ritual. <laughs> like yeah. we, we would do this thing for two months and then we would get like an extra five. You know, my, my dad had like a regular job, but then we would get like a... a like a big push of money that would like take us through the holidays and stuff. Is it true what they say about all the water? Oh, I mean, <laughs> people love to complain about almonds taking up too much water. I mean, the real problem is yeah. um, uh, almond milk like uses like it throws away so much of the value of the almonds to produce this m- stupid milk mm-hmm. like uh, and also puts more water in it. Screw those people like this country. California produces 85% of the world's almonds. It is a billion dollar industry. If California stopped producing almonds, almonds would be like over $100 a pound. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh. Um, well, that doesn't make it right, though. You could say that about dirty energy. I mean, but what are we doing? We're, yeah. like, we're taking the water that falls where we are. <laughs> like, we're taking the water that falls where we are. What's just sitting there. What people are complaining about is the fact that the water is not being put in aqueducts to come down here to um to Los Angeles because of course the proper use for California's water is to pay for aspiring actors to um you know shower and shave as opposed to produce a crop. There's some yoga instructors who cannot relax unless there's a constant trickling noise of something in their backyard. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, and beef it's it's uh, just it's nonsense. Beef takes so much more water than almonds ever would and nobody, nobody brings that up. Uh, also, we should not be sending so much alfalfa to China. That takes a huge amount of water. What do they want with alfalfa? Essentially container ships oh, uh raising horses and cattle, but container ships come here yeah. full of stuff. And then there's nothing for them to take back. So, I know. So we sell alfalfa to them. Some lady became a billionaire by just sending uh, recyclable paper back to China. She was Chinese oh. and she came here and she was just like, they, wait, they send them back empty? That's you could hilarious. Just put, you could put anything? They're like, dude, give us 10 bucks. We'll take your shit back. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's, I mean, there may be a little bit of a... Let's, of bo- let's become trade billionaires, okay? This is a perfect time for it. Yes. It's never been a less thorny issue than that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like in certain ways I can't, I don't feel like the situation I grew up in was quite as dire as yours, but I definitely related to a lot of things. My, my situation wasn't dire. I'm just very whiny. Okay. <laughs> That's another way of putting it. So I grew up in suburban New Jersey. You uh-huh. could see New York City. You could see the skyline okay. from my corner, and yet there were people who would tell you the reasons why they would never go to New York. Are we talking Tenafly? What are we talking Rutherford. here? Rutherford. Okay. Even closer. Yeah, I'm right okay. by the sports complex. Right. And I can recall, it's funny what you remember one time going to the Blimpy, because that's what that was like a big Friday mm-hmm. for us. We'd go to Blimpy and get a sandwich. And I was, my dad uh, worked for AT&T and they'd been on strike and sent him to work in, in Boston. And he came back, gave me a Harvard sweatshirt. Uh-huh. And see, I'm, I'm similar to you in a couple of ways. I'll get to the next one in a second. I went to Blimpy wearing my Harvard sweatshirt. <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, you went to Harvard too? And I didn't get, I didn't get the joke for like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty adorable. <laughs> Right, so I'm similar to you in that re- in 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 the regard that I think we both were into fancy adult 
cosmopolitan things. I have no idea where I got my attraction to that stuff yeah. in a world that didn't put a ton of value on that. Yeah. I actually wanted Grey Poupon. I can remember the first time I had Grey Poupon because I'd seen the ad. Well, I mean, just that thing of like seeing the world that's on television and wanting to have some sort of relationship to it yeah. and understand what the people who are running your world, what are they doing? What are they putting on their hot dog? You know? <laughs> it's better, be better mustard. Than, it's got to be better yeah. than this French's. God damn it. I know it's out there. There is yeah. better mustard out there. So you seem like a a, a progenitor in a, in a lot of senses of the It Gets Better movement. Well, I mean, I think everyone who came out of the closet over the course of the past 15 years made it a whole lot easier for everybody to come out. Mm-hmm. And I but think- even in a non-gay way, like yeah. just like I'm going to because what I understood about uh, the Dan Savage's point with the, it gets better. I remember reading his column before that became a thing and him just saying, if you're stuck in a small town and you're gay and people don't know or just you can't find any partners, it's just not going to work for you to act as a, a gay person there. The the silver lining to that is you can become this incredibly cultured, really great person. So the second you step out and get to a city where it works, you're this well-rounded individual. And I mean, there are ways that having to put your life on hold does screw people up, and there's no way around that. But yeah, I mean, I so frequently am shocked by how much better my life is than what I assumed my life would be. You know, because I just know what I knew had gone to college or anything and so I really and what the people around me were warning me about was the idea that I would like get a a bad job at like a bookstore or something like that that in some way me being like bookish or wanting to care about that sort of thing would end up in me not making as much money as I would as a construction worker Mm -hmm. or some other sort of skilled labor and they were just reflecting the world that they knew and sort of they're trying to be helpful yeah who i was trying to be didn't really make sense to them um but i really did grow up just sort of assuming like oh god i'm gonna have to work construction my entire life and there's nothing like during those summers when i would have to work construction the way that you like come home bone tired and then just have no energy to do anything except like shower eat and then go to bed. Yeah, when you've and, done actual work. Yeah, and um, I was just like, well, this is going to be my life. Um, and I really, you know, respect the people who do stuff like that so we can have the world that we live in. I think that it's too easy for, like, coastal elites to just, like, dismiss or dismiss those people or turn them into a caricature. Hell yeah, and um, vice versa, but yeah. Yes, no, I mean, absolutely vice versa. Um, but, With explicit encouragement from people at the highest levels of government. Yeah, but I, like don't want to have to deal with people who are going to be willfully anti-intellectual or, you know, in other ways, assholes to me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, You say that you should have been, I believe this is a quote, a fat closeted bumpkin. Yes. Did you feel like you spotted some of those like like at what point do you start developing gaydar i guess oh um late like it is weird the people from my hometown who ended up being gay and it was like oh god why didn't i realize this you know so people that you had known that you didn't realize absolutely and also the way that like there were people around me like my sixth grade teacher was just sort of like um it was exactly that was sort of the best story that could happen in yuba city of like uh, closeted um, bookish school teacher who like lived alone and everyone thought was very nice but was not allowed to have a sexuality or personal life in any way mm-hmm. or um, you know 
to, are we allowed to curse here? Yeah, please. Oh, uh, you know, the two men who owned the flower shop that my mom worked for, or as we called them, the faggots. Or the there were like doctors from San Francisco who had like purchased a lovely farm behind ours, thinking that they were going to have this glorious like Northern California life. And every fall we'll watch the children gather almonds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, everyone around them reviled them and, and we called them the faggots. Right. You know. Did you uh, as well? Uh, yes. I mean, it's like the the faggots dogs got out, mm-hmm. you know, um, right. and it was just the way of things. I didn't know. I didn't want to be a faggot. Like, I didn't know yeah. I was one until years and years later. But I do think that it made me very aware of the ways that, like, making people not able to talk about the, the entirety of their lives, making people sort of, like, shape what they can talk about so that it's inoffensive to the people around them, severely limits how much they can be a person you know i understand yeah when like the sixth grade teacher like we we are absolutely cool with whatever you are you can't change the way you are just don't act on it in any way that might make anybody uncomfortable so paint yourself into a tiny little corner and we won't beat you up also could you never speak honestly could you just like never ever speak honestly? Yeah. Um yeah. And you see it you see it grow in, in, in adults. I had a couple of teachers who, you know, I, I well, and I went to a Catholic school and I just felt, looked back a couple years later and I was like, wait a second, I was just I was just educated by celibate homosexuals. Right. You know, and you would start to see it wear on them as they got into their, you know, you can only carry that burden for so long before you start to develop like physical tics. Yes. That's why I'm always a little bit forgiving of the Catholic church because the Catholic church never said no one can be gay. They always just said only we can be gay. And that's not, <laughs> what do you hypo- mean? that's not hypocrisy. That's just old school mean girl. Like, <laughs> well, it was just, this is a, you know, nobody talked about it. I don't know how many people even acknowledged it. I love the old joke that, you know, the Boston family had three sons, the lawyer, the cop and the, and the priest. Mm-hmm. And that's the gay one. Yeah. That there was a place for you to go and we'll, we'll, we'll keep your, uh, you know, your, 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 uh, uh, your liquor cabinet fully stocked and people will respect you and what you guys do behind closed doors we don't really need to know i mean it's a very progressive approach for like 700 ad you know yeah 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 exactly and then and it held until about 20 years ago yeah you know um i'd love the the statement the question why isn't guy killing cats <laughs> So, yeah, like uh, when I was growing up, it was just like a a normal um, pastime for young boys, let's say between six and 12 to just sort of like find small animals and torture them. Um, There was a kid who lived on the other side of the orchard who drowned a cat. There was a kid who set a cat on fire. And like the fact that I, you know, didn't have the same bloodlust as the boys around me um, was really concerning for my parents. Like. Uh, you know, it was a little bit like what's wrong with this kid that he isn't trying to, um, you know, torture cats or beat up people who are smaller than he is. This is a normal right of and that, too, you're supposed to be a bully because you're a big you're a big guy. I'm sure you became a big kid pretty early. They literally did not know what to do with me because I was very large, but I was not like violent. And when I was very small, my mom was like worried about me being too violent to other like kids and then they realized that wasn't going to be a problem just because she knew that you could kick their ass because it was so big and she was you know all of her brothers were guys who just like you know killed cats and were violent and all of that and um you know it became very concerning why i wasn't aggressive in that way 
Uh, and it was weird for me to be like, wait, why? You know, yeah. why are these people killing cats? Like, yeah, I'm not weird. You're weird. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, so you, there's a really nice observation, a nice grace note in the book where you say that kids in small towns just are more acquainted with death. Well, I mean, that's the thing about this whole, like, it's really kind of funny to be like, it's horrifying. They were killing cats. I mean, I fucking killed a shit ton of, like, I killed a bunch of pheasants, like, I killed a bunch of chickens. My, you know, my mother and grandmother killed more chickens combined than, um, you know, than any of the other well, sort different. of Those mavings. Are food. Those are food. But I think there is something really nice about growing up where, like, you've looked your food in the eyes and you know who they are. I always said I was going to do that. I was, this is one of these stupid things I thought was so clever to say at parties for forever. When I grow up, I'm going to grow a chicken and I'm going to be yeah. friends with it. I'm going to name it and i'm gonna murder it and eat it because i gotta do it i gotta do it one time and you know the fact of the matter is we we yeah you're either in that culture where you become acquainted with it i don't necessarily think less of people who maybe this is just a cop out but who would be squeamish about killing an animal but aren't squeamish about eating it i've talked to enough people who do that for a living and ask them if they have moral qualms about it and they go no you guys in the cities are the ones projecting that Onto me. It's my fucking job. I don't care. One time I was talking to my niece uh, and a friend was in the car and my niece let me know that uh, I forget whether I tell the story in the book that a cat had died. One of her kitties had died. And he, my friend was like very concerned for her. Was she okay emotionally? And then I was like, I had her list the names of the remaining cats. And one of the cats was named the gray one who didn't die. <laughs> like, you know, it's like we have a different relationship to, you know, a cat. I mean, we don't fix our cats. A cat has six kittens, and then they go out and they lead lives, and sometimes they are murdered by the world, and sometimes they go and, like, a cat's best life is to be a serial murderer, you know? Like, you know, cats uh, in my parents' orchard, their job is to kill rats and ground squirrels right. and survive. <laughs> I think people forget about that. There's there's three animals that have been typically tolerated, you know, in a domestic way. Well, I guess if you want to get into food animals, and there's more, but... Horses yeah. were more useful to ride than to eat. Yeah. Dogs were more useful to warn of danger at yeah. night when you're trying to sleep than to eat. And cats eat the things that give you the plague. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to know cats who get to do that and don't just sort of like, you know, sit in an apartment all day long. Yeah. Do you have pets? I, I do not. I always say I have a basil plant and it's not doing well. Nobody's basil plant is doing well. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen it. I'm deeply suspicious of anybody whose herbs are doing well. Yes. It, it, it takes a lot of uh, motivation and energy to even go down to the nursery the one time and get the stuff and set it up all nice. And you, if you actually maintain it beyond that, you're hiding something. I mean, the thing is, is like... Uh, Jimmy Stewart actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what he did in his declining years. Yes. He gardened. Uh, your dad made a fence, and then your uncle made a fence, and then your dad made another fence. I wasn't totally clear what the hell was going on there. Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> um, there are spots on my parents' property where you have just like three fences in succession um, <laughs> because it was like a fence that was an enclosure, and then one person builds a fence all the way around their entire property, and the other person builds a fence all the way around their entire property. My uncle professionally was, like, built fences, and so he was always building fences. But also it's, like, weird as a Californian when you go to, like, the Midwest or whatever where everybody's backyards just flow into each other, and it's like, what the hell are you people doing? So you live next door to your uncle's? So, like, my— They were behind you? They were behind us. They were on the other side of the orchard. So, like— Did anybody own that, or was it just, like— 
almonds up for dibs? Well, it was originally my uh, grandparents uh, on the other side owned sort of like uh, a decent amount of acreage, and then they sold plots of it off for land. So there were the almonds like still in between us and everybody had technical ownership of some portion of the orchard, but then we would all just sort of like collectively harvest them together and then split the proceeds. I was a child. I didn't know the official term. Right, right, right. I got you. I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure some of that almond money trickled down to you at Christmas time. Oh, it really did. You ate possum? Oh yes. I have eaten possum. <laughs> How's that? What's, uh, your, what's your preferred, uh, <laughs> way for serving possum oh well i mean the only way the thing is with all of these game meats there's just like one way of doing it it's like i think my mom like boiled it part way and then uh fried it uh i'm not sure i remember squirrel better squirrels she just cooked like you would cook chicken like like fried chicken you ever eat squirrel brains well i've never eaten squirrel brains because that's a that's a thing mad squirrels uh, a thing Uh and you get it by eating squirrel brains and some people in the u.s have had it recently so guess what somebody out there and apparently it's not just like well then when you get real hungry then you get to the brain eventually uh-huh. apparently the best meat it's like the there's the oyster on a chicken yeah the equivalent of the squirrel apparently is the brain i've only recently learned i mean look i'm i'm <laughs> not a fan i do always miss um so, so like if you've ever like we would go pheasant hunting constantly when I was growing up and dog hunting, mm-hmm. but like a bird that has like lived a life and has like done stuff tastes so much better than a bird that just lived its life in a cage. And the first time I like went to um, a Chinese butcher and like got freshly killed pheasants, I was really expecting that same experience. And then I taste it and it was like, oh no, this pheasant like lived a sad life. But if you like this one. One of the most evocative smells in my memory is cutting open a pheasant to gut it. And that smell, smelling exactly like a rice field, had come to life. Like, um, because their their guts are full of rice and bugs and, like, their mm-hmm. whole life is lived in this rice field. Yeah. And then they smell like a rice field came to life. See, I just find you and this story and this life of yours so fascinating because now you seem like a more or less prototypical urban creature. Yes. But you have, it's obvious from talking to you and reading your book, some affection for some of the things that you saw and experienced. We're all affectionate, you know, have, hopefully have some good memories of our childhood. Like, do how do you scratch this itch? Because this is a part of you here in... I mean, it's not that scratchable. It's weird. After the book came out, a couple of people from my hometown were like um, mad at me that I did not seem to love my hometown enough. And it's like, well, my hometown never particularly loved me. And it's hard because there are so many things I'm proud of about it. And Mm -hmm. I'm proud of the people who are from there. Um, But they don't have space for somebody like me. The hardest part, I would have to say, is that um, I've just not had a decent peach since I left. Let's be honest. Most of the peaches you run into in a supermarket, even at a farmer's market, a little bit mealy, not great. Dog shit. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, like the other side of the road from us was a peach orchard, uh, and we had a peach tree. Um, and also, sometimes you would just go and steal peaches from the people across the street. As you do. Uh, as you do. And those are some quality peaches. Um, the I think that... I was curious to know what contact, if any, you have with people. Do you have friends that you grew up with you're still in contact with? Not really. I mean- But I, you have gotten some feedback from- I know some people, like, I have light contact with people on Facebook mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. And, and a lot of people have been really, like, cool and supportive. And some people were very much like, you shouldn't be talking about this town that, that way. And it's hard yeah. understanding, again, <laughs> like, 
how much right to ownership mm-hmm. of this story do I have? Like, because my story is definitely not a prototypical Yuba City story. And that's weird. But but it's also kind of the weird thing of like the books that have been written about Yuba City aren't about happy rednecks because happy rednecks don't write books like there's a good collection of poetry by a south asian woman about um the punjabi community there there's my book and that's pretty much it and the 1985 Rand mcnally um uh rankings of uh american cities uh, who can forget in which yuba city came dead last in america oh come on it can't be can't be that bad Hey, you fight with Rand McNally. <laughs> I thought I, I the the tone of your book is uh it's it's tart. It's um a bit superior at times. Uh-huh. You're conscious of that. Yes. I, I was curious what conversations, if any, you had with your editor about it might be off putting that you're frequently making it clear to readers that you know more than them and may well be smarter than them. I mean, he never really said anything. My editor was great. My mm-hmm. editor was like, this is lovely. I expected him to push back more. The yeah. thing is, is like, when it comes to my stand-up, when it comes to me writing for TV or writing for other people, it is my job to sort of like shape that tone to what is expected, what other people want. Like, when I'm doing stand-up, I have to make sure that everybody's laughing once every minute and a half. You know? Like, if not more. Like, um this book is different. This book was sort of like, Hey, here's the virtual experience of having me drunk talking to you at a cocktail party. And I wasn't going to turn off any part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, part of, I'm, I'm a little bit tired of having to turn off parts of who I am. And so I really loved the way that in this book, I was able to say like, come play on my territory. We're going to have this conversation and I'm going to put footnotes in here so that Mm -hmm. I can use what I think is the first best reference for this situation. And I'll also explain what's going on. Um, Which involved a lot of uh, trivia. Yeah. I can admit now I think I felt threatened by just how much trivia you know that I don't know. Um, I didn't realize, I guess, how much I valued my feeling that I could, you know, I don't have a lot of intellectual superiors until I was like, oh, I have no idea. But the thing is, is like, but it's only because it's my book. And so I got to pick the things that I know about. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, I did some mental gymnastics guy and I figured out that it was okay. And I was still pretty smart. There's not a whole lot of like, there's no sports trivia. Right. Yeah, I know tons of that. You know, there's not. Do you know music? I don't know music at all. I could talk all day about me. Okay. Yes. You would be probably very valuable to have on a quiz uh, on a, a pub trivia team. Um, because I, I'm generally on teams that are yep. very weak on sports and music. How's your hockey? Awful. All right. That's my big See, week. Yeah. I can't do college sports either. Okay. And I can't do baseball from the last 10 years. All they do is fucking fix their batting gloves and grab their dick. It's like all the games. Be, they've had an extra hour and a half. Of hey, just... they also have beards and wear jewelry. Yeah. There's a lot more beards now. I, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. I'm, but I'm, I'm kind of bearded at the moment. I, I feel like I need to tell somebody. I may as well tell you, I do not care to have this beard. I'm, my son is, uh, a velociraptor for Halloween, and I'm going to be Chris Pratt from Jurassic World. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful! So I—that's the only reason why I have any facial hairs because I'm getting into character. What's his costume? He's the well. He, I said velociraptor. He is the um, he is the Indoraptor, uh-huh. which was the because they always need to one up themselves with some dumb new dinosaur. So uh-huh. the last time they made the Indominus Rex, and that was like because people were bored of all, making all the old real dinosaurs, they made a fake one that was even bigger and scarier. Yeah, and this time they morphed they they hybrided that one with a Velociraptor. They basically took the two most popular toys and made them into one. I mean, that's smart. Mode. Yeah, yeah, no, they know they kind of know what they're uh, what they're doing. 
Have you ever thought about doing a comedy event that is like a pub trivia thing? It seems like such a natural. Yes, I have. Um, Like my friend Alex Cole and I for a while were talking about doing a pub trivia where you got points for the best wrong answer. Yeah. um, Which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, I would go to that. And then. Well, I'm married. I I would say I would go to that and then I would plague. Yes. Um, But no, I I love pub trivia so much. Like, I don't do it because I love it too much. Like, being able to put yourself in a place where um, there's, like, beer on tap, there's probably, like, fried fish or sausages, and then um, you get to answer questions Mm -hmm. is, like, too much of a happy place for me and I would destroy myself if I did it on a regular basis. Yeah, you pursue that pretty seriously it seems like. Yes. I love your take on I've never heard anybody say this before to make so much sense to me the the social value and the social function of young people watching reruns of old sitcoms. Yeah. Please share your take on this because I I'd never thought of it and man. I basically think um, it's just a, a vast library of like adult social interactions where they get to watch and then the interactions are underlined with laugh track that tells them what somebody when somebody is doing something that is inappropriate um and it is sort of like them learning about sophistication like the process my niece was 17 now but like she spent one entire summer when she was like 14 watching all of mash and like before that she watched all of the office and i was like really what's the appeal of mash to you um, and it's a great point. I've, I've never liked that show, and I've probably seen yeah, every single episode. It's like not funny, and she was just f- found it very and so smug. Yes, um, she thought it was interesting. Well, she loves me, so she's probably learning to appreciate smug. I say, um, but I was like, did you learn anything about the Korean War? And she was like, I learned more about the seventies. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. right, yeah, it, but just yeah, the idea that. It's it is interesting that this the whole system of education that we have is so incredibly outdated for reasons I've already gotten into that I'm sure you're well aware of, I've gotten into ten times in the show. I don't need to repeat, but we teach people a bunch of things they're never gonna use and then people come out, they don't yeah. know how to pay taxes, they don't know how to balance a checkbook, they don't know how to evaluate the truthfulness of claims that public figures make. And they also uh, they, That's so interesting. <laughs> we never have kids practice doing their taxes. Like that's so funny. Well, there's a lot of things that, like, I guess that one, if you sort of just get how to balance, like, uh, manage household finances, I guess you can I get know, that. But it would be so simple to run us through it. Oh, there's you all know? sorts of things that would be yeah. simple to run people through. And, right, just the basic do's and don'ts of how people, because you're, everybody's house is, is weird. Yeah. What is the, every happy house is the same and yeah. every unhappy house is its own little, yeah. whatever the hell, um, Victorian novel. It does kind of teach you about this, like in the same way there's like a standardized BBC accent. This Mm -hmm. is like the standardized take of the zeitgeist of our culture and of our morality. And these are the people we laugh at. And these are the people that we value. These are the sorts of people we're sexually attracted to. These are the things that are cool to do on dates. And these are things that make you a loser in the romantic sphere. You're not going to get that from your parents. In my case, maybe if you have younger parents, then you still see active adults around you living, leading social lives. My parents were, my dad was 40 when I was born. So I wasn't getting a lot of, I didn't see how, like cool young adults socialized well i mean like there are things about it that are great and really aspirational i think that 
spending the bulk of the 80s showing happy families that largely supported each other where no one was beaten did a lot to say, hey, maybe that beating that your dad did to you is yeah. not something you should do to your child. And I'm not saying it's absolute, but I think yeah. it gave people something to hope for. But there's you also how Alan Thicke would never stoop to that. Exactly. Um, but at the same <laughs> at the same time, there are, when you're talking about things like dating mores and stuff, it like solidified in everybody's head you know um the sexual norms of like the 70s or 80s or yes. 90s right and we're now having this conversation about like the ways that that convinced young men like brett kavanaugh mm-hmm. that sexual assault was a funny thing that you do yeah three's company was a bad yes right it was a bad example for young men i need to appreciate that show more and it's respect not. that it was all farce like yeah. um you know there were a lot of slamming doors i always just thought it was dumb It recently occurred to me that, you know, we all get caught up on the ruse of their pretending that he's gay so they can be. But what about just the practicality of among themselves making the agreement that this is an acceptable living situation for them? Two women and one straight man sharing one bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I can tell, it didn't have a window. People were constantly getting trapped in that bathroom. Yeah, it was a pretty busy. It was a pretty busy bathroom. Is it mores? Is that how you're supposed to say? Yes. Oh, son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. How many times have I embarrassed myself? I thought it was Moore's. I mean, with with some of those things. And also, like, as a kid who learned everything from books, I was constantly mispronouncing words. See, that's the problem. I was saying I was saying Mueller on the radio like a week ago. It's Mueller, right? Yeah. I, I fucking read. I don't watch CNN. Despite yeah. what everybody seems to think. Everybody, everybody seems to think that all we do in Los Angeles is just fucking sit around eating tofu and drinking smoothies and watching MSNBC. I actually cannot stand it any more than you can. That's not true. We go to screeners and <laughs> we, we watch screeners and we go to, to like. Um, movie openings, premieres. That's yeah, this is. Called. Yeah, I've got to get out of here soon. I've past hors d'oeuvres. I've got lots of past <laughs> hot hors d'oeuvres. I've got several cocktail parties to get to, and I loved uh, not just your take on Bewitched, but I guess it gave me, it made me realize about a, a, a bunch of different shows of that ilk and of that era, how much there were closeted or cloaked hidden gay characters who acted as sort of like what, it, like the classic, like the trickster. Yeah. character that was sort yeah. of the function of socially not sexually gay people well it was interesting in the in the 60s because we did have these people like charles nelson riley and um oh what's his name from uncle arthur um from bewitched but like these guys who started out as actors bruce Vol- is we're looking for valanche i don't it's know it's not bruce valanche uh <laughs> Um, I should remember his name. I, like right after I came out of the closet, there was an article in Out Magazine about him. Um, uh, Paul Lind. Paul Lind. Oh, Paul Lind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, um, the story was he was having sex with an escort and um, the escort had his eyes closed and Paul Lind slapped him and said, when Lind's fucking you, you look him in the eyes. Um, and Classic Lind. That's how I remember his name. But like then ended up on um, like uh, Match Game or... Uh, the Hollywood squares and were definitely giving you like gay vibes and gay sass, but could never actually be gay. Right. In a way that was really interesting. There's one time on match game when, uh, Charles Nelson Riley made a, a joke at the expense of, of homosexuals. Cause that was his job. And like, um, Brett Summers sort of like reaches over and essentially is like, don't do that. <laughs> and it's like really sweet for something that is like, 
you saw a bit of their honest relationship on this thing that was a TV show. But yeah, um, you know, Bewitched is like the closest thing we had to Drag Race until we got Drag Race. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. And it's like there are these mystical trickster beings who are playing, you know, it's not a coincidence that the field that they're playing on is the most typical all-American suburban heterosexual it's the dad was gay but heterosexual yes uh, I mean it is it is them playing tricks on domesticity it is them walking into that suburban household that we felt was the bedrock of you know American prosperity Mm -hmm. and messing it up and shitting on it um and that was really fun because and people loved it that's the thing it wasn't a cult hit it's a mainstream hit well and like it, you always have it counterposed against I Dream of Jeannie, where she was subservient to, like, the strong, powerful man of the 60s, the astronaut. And it's never as much fun as having, you know, women and gay guys come in and sort of, like, screw with domestic happiness. And one of the things that's wonderful is that at the end of the day, Samantha is always like, we can still have domestic happiness even though I have this power. That's right. And we think, can reconcile these two sides. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really interesting approach to having it all. I look forward to seeing what uh, Kenya Barris does with the the reboot of Bewitched. They're doing at ABC. Oh, that's happening? Yep. I can't even keep TV shows straight. Hey, can I ask you, I, 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 I thought of this when I was reading your book and it just came back to me right now. <clears throat> can I ask you a question on behalf of like all gay men? Sure. Do you know who uh, Dan Levy is? Yes. Eugene Levy's son. He's on yes. Schitt's Creek. It's a terrific show. Yes. Uh, well, it used to be better than it is now, but whatever. Good show. Yes. I love that show so much. He what, he hosts some sort of reality competition show on Canadian TV. And uh-huh. I think at a certain point, and I hope I have the fact, I would have done my homework. I just, like I said, forgot about this until now. There was a review written about it that was critical of just sort of saying, I like this, I don't like that, saying that the way he hosted was, I think, like, Faye may have been the word. Mm-hmm. And he took umbrage to that, and I think many people leapt to his support. And I've never been able to really decide how I feel about that, because I look at that and I go, yeah, I can see these are code words to say, stop acting so gay, gay boy. Uh-huh. And I can totally understand where that is. That's not cool. But I could also imagine... R- reading a review or writing a review show where I go, you know what? Uh, this show's good. This guy's maybe a little too macho. He could tone it down a little bit and that wouldn't be an attack on anything other than I don't think you're totally fitting with the show as well as you possibly could. I mean, the thing is, is you have to look at it in the context of history. Like, being too macho has rarely been a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Where being too fey is something that has had people excluded from discourse for a lot of time Mm -hmm. like we are so allowed to find gayness gay voices gay expression uh distasteful like i just um uh guest hosted love it or leave it a political podcast for a couple of weeks while they were off making an hbo show and the first week i was there like people were lovely and then the second week another gay guy was on the show it was me and Travel anderson and like you know, a person who listens to a liberal political podcast was like, when did this turn into a fag fest? And people just, you know, we are trained to believe that being upset by voices like mine is normal. We are trained to believe that people are less serious and less intelligent when they sound like they might be gay. Like Mm -hmm. we are trained to believe that gays are frivolous. And I understand why Dan would push back at that and say, like, hey, you know, I mean, much in the way that, like, um, 
you know, we have been trained to think that people who uh, speak in African-American vernacular are dumber and less important. Mm -hmm. You know, we have been trained to interpret like these things that are unrelated to intelligence or importance as being reasons to dismiss people and like being macho or sounding too white. Like these are things that have never gotten in the way of somebody being taken seriously, you know? Well, I guess macho. There comes a macho man Randy Savage point. Yeah. I would say, like, you know, at, at the point when you are promoting Slim Jims, maybe we can talk. Okay. All right. Um, hey, did uh, everybody really have sex with uh, Chelsea Handler? Is that just a joke that every guy who ever met her actually it just makes? I mean, look, I was never there to witness any of it. Yeah. But for most of the time I worked at Chelsea lately, she was in a relationship uh-huh. with uh, our boss, the head of the network. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I forgot, and then there I was forgot some, about that. Some time with the animal expert. And then there was some time with uh, with 50 Cent. Those were the only ones. Wait, I, I think I know the animal guy. Is that I, the guy I'm thinking of? Dave Salmoni? No. Oh, then I know the guy who was bummed it wasn't him. I, yes. I knew it was something like that. I just, I, I mean, I guess. I can't believe how many people I've been around who, you know, in a in a comedy setting, they'll be like, oh, how many female comics have you slept with? And they go, well, other than Chelsea. And I'm like, I've heard that joke so many times. I'm starting to think it's not a joke. I mean, the thing is, is like her ownership of her sexuality I was did. always something I was really impressed with. Yeah. And I remember one time uh, when I was writing on the show, when I sort of spoke critically of um, female comics who date more successful male comics she was just like when you start comedy who do you think you're going to get a crush on and i like the fact that she called me out on that Mm -hmm. and like made me rethink it and also was very much like yeah when she was falling in love with comedy she was also falling in love with people's voices and she was exploring that and not being scared you know it's really tragic that we live in a world where women's value can be dismissed because they had sex. You know? I don't mean th- it that. Th- I don't mean it that way. No, I'm that just nice. Oh, I didn't. I'm just I, trying to get a sense of you know. I, I, I didn't think that you meant it. That okay, way. good. Yeah, like if if uh, well, like David Letterman's terrible example because of you know whatever the hell was yes. extra stuff was going on there. But like, yeah, if a guy joked about having sex with his staff, or no, no, this guy actually was really tearing through. Well, that just changes my well, understanding of what was going on there and paints a more complete picture of me. I hope she did. I've well, met her a couple times. I would love to imagine the, that she did whatever the hell she wanted. There's to also do. just the demographic difference of like. Um, women are like 10 to 20% of stand-up comedy, which means like if guys have dated two female comics in their lives, then most female comics have dated like 10 male comics. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, finally, I have to let you go. We're out of time. You, This I, has been lovely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I feel the same way. Thank you so much for coming by. We got it together eventually. Yes. Um, I make these little like little cue cards for myself that I find like things uh-huh. that try to re- inspirational or keep me on the straight and narrow, help me keep perspective. And there's something from your book that I've added to my collection of things that come up as screensavers. Oh, it's lovely. Uh, you're talking about, is it a short story, Babette's Feast? Yes. Okay. And um, I uh, paraphrased ever so slightly. What matters is getting to do the things you are capable of doing using the fullness of yourself. I think people are constantly trying to figure out you know, what is the meaning of life? That is the eternal question. And as best as I can tell, doing what you're here to do as often as you can do it, as well as you can do it, is a big part of the answer. The answer to that question may not be words, it may be actions. It gives me so much satisfaction when I'm able to do something that is like the most of myself. And it's one of the reasons I really enjoyed writing the book and one of the reasons that I filled it with so much 
like so many references that weren't the first things that a lot of people would think of because I wanted to be using the whole of myself as Mm -hmm. much as possible. It was really lovely. Thank you so much for reading it. I appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. You're at Guy Branham on all major socials. The book is My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Do you want to plug anything else? Buy it today. There you go.